Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. What I initially contacted you for to discuss, which is carbon dioxide, <laughs> which is my new passion. So interestingly, uh, I, I think I sent you the bit. Did you, get, did you see that interview I sent you with Ray? Ray? Pre, he's yeah, talked previously? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, he's mentioned carbon dioxide several times, but I think this is the only one that's exclusively about yeah, so carbon dioxide. You hadn't seen that specific interview before I sent it to you. Uh, no, I, no, I've seen cl little clips of it. People have yeah, like uh, I, I provided didn't this. Think like, so support. because I, I found it on YouTube and it just got referred to me through the the the, the recommendation algorithm, and it was only two thousand views. Two thousand views. I said this yeah. is crazy. It should have two point two million views. And it was done in 2010. So it's like a, this long period of time. And yeah, it's, it's not gone at all. So, you know, and, and we can put a link to that too. But it, it, you should, you, well, forget the link just in case it somehow gets ignored and not put in, like I said. Uh, you can just go to YouTube and type in repeat space CO2 and it'll come up. It's with Bud Weiss, I think. And uh, yeah. so watching that video, I listened to it four or five times. It was so profoundly powerful and i knew after listening to that that because i we, we've talked about it too that co2 co2 production was important but i didn't realize how important until i listened to him talk about it and uh i, I won't spoil the surprises for you but it, it appears to be one of the best longevity interventions that's currently known there there really isn't anything that comes close other than maybe the diet you know low linoleic acid and die prematurely from cancer and heart disease and dementia <laughs> um but you, you, the CO2 is, is beyond absolutely magnificent. It, it is something, and virtually no one, virtually no clinician understands this. Pete was really the only guy, and he's not a clinician, he was a scientist, that really recommended it. And there are some people who are advocating it. We're going to talk about the different modalities, and typically through breathing strategies. I got to warn you that most of the breathing recommendations are wrong they're actually will make you worse. You have to be really, really careful. And I'm going to be interviewing uh, probably one of the top breathing experts in the world, Dr. Peter Litchfield, who has a, a, a well, I don't know if he has a PhD in physiology, he might, but he's, his PhD is in behavioral psychology. So he's, he's married the, the concepts of understanding behavior and breathing patterns and identifying the, the habits that cause abnormal breathing. So it's really important to do that. And and there's so many people, and I was guilty of this. I, it, it just really devastated my health because I was exercising actively and I was engaged in high intensity exercises. And when I did that, I, I don't know how it happened, but I developed a really, really bad breathing habit that I didn't realize that I had. I haven't, and I haven't done this in like 15 years, but I now understand what caused the problem is that I was overbreathing. And when you overbreathe, you blow out CO2. And you have a respiratory alkalosis and you have really low CO2 levels. And that is the devil that will kill you prematurely. It is really, really, really dangerous. And uh, so anyway, that breathing is one. And we'll talk about some other modalities. But I'll, I'll let you take it from here with that introduction because I, I, it, it is my new passion. And I'm going to write a narrative study and have it published and review the literature. But I, have it, I, I won't be able to do that for probably two or three months from now. 
but that, which is why I wanted to be catalyzed by your insights before I start the journey to do that. But I'm going to be going really deep into this topic in the future. And this is the first time we're discussing it on the site. Yeah, there's a legend that uh, I forgot it was Buddha or one of the other you know, kind of saints in the Eastern Eastern traditions. To uh, somebody asked him, like, can you summarize your your uh, you know what is what are your what is your discipline? What is your philosophy all about? And the person responded, it's learning how to mm-hmm. breathe, or or more importantly, don't breathe too much or don't breathe Over too fast. Breathing. Basically, learn to control yeah, your breath. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and it looks like these traditions have kind of like uh, they really had like their finger right on the you know spot on the issue. Uh, and it turns out that carbon dioxide, uh, even though medically it's viewed as mostly as a waste product uh, of respiration, it's actually the thing that protects us from oxygen's well no- well known toxicity. Uh, in fact, if you speak to people who work in trauma or in the intensive care unit, when they have to revive people uh, that are that are basically in shock or like or or have suffered some kind of an ischemic attack. They will tell you that that the premature delivery of oxygen or delivering too much oxygen too early or without sufficient control measures, in other words, reperfusion, is actually what kills most mm-hmm. patients uh, after they come out of like of the initial shock stage. Um, and uh, multiple publications have been done. I think it's actually studied in medical school that the reason for that is that basically that the, the introduction of too much oxygen too quickly creates this massive both cytokine storm and inflammatory reaction and reactive oxygen species. And one of the reasons is that the cells are hypometabolic. They're not producing sufficient carbon dioxide. Uh, so they're, ne- they're not able to utilize the oxygen properly. Um, and uh, there's been a lot of research, I would say, uh, very, I mean, uh, first of all, Asian cultures knew that carbonated water uh, had very good health benefits. I think the Romans recommended taking baths in like naturally carbonated water for all kinds of ailments, specifically arthritis, infertility, the insanities, as they call them, a number of different uh, uh, rem- a number of different health problems. Then in the Middle Ages, it was also recommended by several monks who are most of the people who are dealing with medicine, quote-unquote, as it was known at the time. And then uh, more recently, in the 20th century, uh, the Russians did a lot of research with it. To this day, you can go to former Soviet republics. There are clinics that offer CO2 baths or like treatments with CO2 where you either lie in a bath when it's being filled with CO2 because it's heavier than air, so it stays in the bathtub. If you you know lower yourself carefully to not disturb it, you can actually bathe in CO2 and it diffuses uh, very easily through the skin. Not as easy as oxygen, but it's still, you, you will absorb a significant amount. Um, or, you, or you get into these big bags where you basically like go into a plastic bag up to your neck and then they fill it up with carbon dioxide and that's kind of like well, the same thing. There's actually as, a company that makes a suit. It's it's essentially like a dry suit and it inflates like the Michelin Man and and you can be, be, be and it has uh essentially blocked off because carbon dioxide doesn't, doesn't penetrate neoprene or, or rubber. So it stays in there. It's like a bag and it's safer and it doesn't escape. Yep. So it, it, it fairly diffuses through your skin and you can feel it almost immediately because you start feeling hot. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a sign of vasodilation, which brings us to the first important, probably the, one of the most important factors, cardiovascular effects of, of, of CO2, is that it's, it's the natural vasodilator in, inside of the body, the endogenous one. Uh, which means it keeps your blood vessels supple. So if basically there is some kind of a stressful event, the heart needs to increase its activity and delivery 
of blood to the tissues that the, that the blood vessels can actually expand and, and accommodate that without creating more strain for the heart. Because if they don't expand, if they if they're not supple, if they they're not if they cannot expand to accommodate the bigger the the, the higher flow of blood, they're going to get higher blood pressure, right? And also ultimately, because of the higher resistance to the heart, you can get heart failure. Uh, in fact, I think one of the endpoints of untreated high blood pressure is congestive heart failure. Um, so it turns out that the role of carbon dioxide, its primary uh, physiological mechanical role, let's put a mechanical role is actually to to uh, to provide this ability of the blood vessels to uh, 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 to be able to expand on demand um, and also with chronic treatment has been shown to be able to do that even in heavily calcified uh, blood vessels uh, so you can actually reverse soft tissue calcification if the treatment continues uh, for sufficiently I, long I think you can reverse a lot of signs of aging and de- aging damage caused from the aging process can be reversed with this. Yeah, almost everything. The lipofuscin carbon dioxide has been shown to increase its degradation in the cell. For a long time, it was considered an irreversible mm-hmm. process, these aging spots that we get, that. which actually, by the way, byproduct of iron and yes. PUFA, right? So it's best to not get them to start with. But if you do get them, carbon dioxide is one thing that can actually dis- uh, help dissolve them. Tocopherols are another thing. Low dose of alcohol is another thing that can actually help dissolve them. But anyways, back to carbon dioxide. So if you don't produce sufficient amount of carbon dioxide, and carbon dioxide is produced in the mitochondria exclusively in the Krebs cycle, which means if, if, if you have a mitochondrial dysfunction, if you're hypothyroid, if there's inflammation, reactive oxygen species, you name it, if mitochondria is not functioning properly, you will not be producing sufficient amounts of carbon dioxide. Now, the body knows that this dysfunction can occur, and there is an emergency vasodilator, uh, which the low levels of CO2 automatically trigger. They activate something called inducible nitric oxide synthase. It's just a if the, lo- if the levels of CO2 in the blood fo- fall below a certain level, you're going to start overproducing nitric and, oxide. And if, just uh, an interject here, there's three types of nitric oxide, INOS, which you just mentioned, ENOS, neuronal, and, and, and endothelial, yeah. ENOS, which tends to yeah. be the safest of them. And then I definitely want you to expand on its, its impact on ENOS, which is thought to be therapeutic. Yeah, so the so the, the so so for the enos, uh, where basically you you overproduce you produce nitric oxide, but it stays in the actual blood vessel. For inos, you produce the nitric oxide, but a lot of it also spills over spills over into the blood. And actually, that's kind of the purpose of inos because the primary purpose of nitric oxide in the body is to fight pathogens. Mm-hmm. It's a reactive nitrogen species. It's produced for only two reasons, really: either emergency vasodilator. Or if the body, the immune system senses there is an invasion from pathogens, specifically bacteria and viruses, in which case INOS is, is activated. So the reason INOS is bad is because the nitric oxide does not stay localized. It basically, it's made available systemically because you want to affect all blood vessels, right? And that's what happens when you don't have sufficient amounts of carbon dioxide production. And But, and, but no, so if you don't have CO2, you will have elevated NO. But with NO, nitric oxide, you have a lot of other uh, bad things happening. It's a highly reactive molecule. It can actually damage, can form peroxynitride species, which you mentioned earlier. It can actually itself damage the polyunsaturated fats in the cells, no matter where they are, right? Uh, Nitric oxide itself can bind, uh, can form a covalent bond with something called cytochrome C oxidase, which is the rate-limiting, really, step of the oxidative phosphorylation. Otherwise known as complex (laughs) 4. Complex four, exactly. Complex four. And the only two things that have been shown to be able to break that bond, aside, you know, one way is to produce a new 
uh, enzyme cytochrome C oxidase, but that, that takes a long time and a lot of energy. So you want to break that bond because otherwise your oxygen phosphorylation is inhibited. Methylene blue can do it. Magnesium can do it. Carbon dioxide can and near infrared. Near infrared and some quinones. Yeah. Yes. And I think the primary effect of red light, just as you mentioned, the Russians did a lot of studies with it. Americans did a lot of studies with it in the early 20th century is precisely that. It's activation of cytochrome C oxidase if it's either blocked by something or if there is insufficient amounts of it, red light can stimulate the production of sufficient amounts of cytochrome C oxidase. Nice. Um, so really, so basically carbon dioxide kind of like a, 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 it's a, it prevents you from getting the nitric oxide, which can have the effect of creating pseudohypoxia because you have the oxygen in the cells, but you cannot use it because cytochrome C oxidase so is it, blocked. It, it, and there, it actually dissociates the covalent bond of nitric oxide on complex four? Okay. Yeah. And very few things can yeah. block it, right? Uh, can, 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 can break yeah. that bond. Um, so, you know, it really is it's a uh, carbon, carbon monoxide has a very, very similar effect, but that bond is really irreversibly, except methylene mm-hmm. blue, methylene blue can break it. And that's really the way you die from carbon monoxide is you die from hypoxia. Oxygen is there. It's that you're not able to, you're not able to carry it with but, hemoglobin. But carbon monoxide also binds to hemoglobin. So it, what is the yes. rate limiting factor? Is it, is it the carbon monoxide in the electron transport chain or is it the hemoglobin or is it both? Uh, I would say the hemoglobin is the first one because it immediately stops you from yeah. being able to That's carry right. yeah. oxygen yeah. to the cells. And then later on, if it basically, because it also binds with cytochrome C oxidase, even the oxygen that's already there, it's being prevented from, from being used oxidatively and, and, and for respiration okay. to happen. Uh, and methylene blue can do that with carbon monoxide in both hemoglobin and the cytochrome C um, oxidase uh, okay. platform, uh, the, the, the mm-hmm. enzyme. So when you're producing sufficient amounts of carbon dioxide, not only are you getting supple blood vessels, but you're also getting non, you're avoiding the blockage of cytochrome C oxidase. Now, more importantly than that, the delivery of oxygen. So let's say you breathe, you have perfectly well-functioning lungs in a capillary system, and you produce sufficient amounts of hemoglobin, you're not anemic. Uh, the oxygen binds to the hemoglobin when you inhale, and then this blood starts circulating. How does the, how does the blood know where to deliver the oxygen and how does this delivery actually happen? Because the bond uh, between oxygen and hemoglo- hemoglobin is relatively strong. Well, there's something called the Bohr effect. And basically what the Bohr effect says is that it's the presence of sufficient amounts of carbon dioxide that are weakening the bond between oxygen and hemoglobin. So hemoglobin can release the oxygen when it's in the capillaries and, and to the peripheral tissues. So it can release the oxygen and then bind carbon dioxide and then basically go the other way. And then so it can scale the carbon dioxide. Without sufficient amounts of carbon dioxide produced by these cells and getting excreted into the extracellular space, you will not be able to dissociate the oxygen, sufficient amounts of oxygen from hemoglobin. Um, so this pulse oximeter that doctors really, really like using, um, you know, if you actually attach it um, uh, to a cadaver, it will show you 100% saturation. Uh, which is what doctors you know love they say oh you should you should, you should have high saturation not necessarily uh, you need to be somewhere in between because full saturation means could mean also you're not dissociating the oxygen at all so you just keep circulating futile in a futile manner into your bloodstream and it turns out that the major factor that that that, that determines how well your tissue oxygenation will be is basically how much carbon dioxide you're producing if you if you're hypometabolic, if your mitochondria are not working, if you're not producing sufficient amounts of carbon dioxide, if you're actually oxidizing mostly fats, which produce less carbon dioxide per molecule, 
so your respiratory quotient is below below one, right? Then you're in a state automatically of functional hypoxia because you will not be able to deliver as much oxygen to the yeah, tissues. Let, let me um, just interrupt you for a moment because I just want to clear up something. You because you said it a few times now that you're how much carbon dioxide you're producing, and yes, that's a factor, and I'm not disputing that metabolic production should be optimized for a wide variety of reasons, one of which is CO2. But I think there's more effective strategies to reason CO2 as since I've been diving into this. One of them is the breathing that you reference, but the most yeah. important and the one we're going to dive into is exogenous administration, which is not has nothing to do with metabolic production. It's when you administer this therapeutically uh, through a wide variety of different mechanisms. So strategies to do that. But, but I just want to clear that up that I, I'm thinking that the most this may be the most important supplement that one can augment to their, their yeah. practice. So it, it, and that doesn't mean you should ignore trying to optimize your maximum CO2 production in your mitochondria. But I just think the exogenous trumps it by a wide margin. Of course, because you can deliver much yeah, bigger yeah. amounts. I just wanted to point out that if you don't produce carbon dioxide, it's not at all a waste product without carbon dioxide. Another thing that says because carbon dioxide is a Lewis acid, mm -hmm. Uh, it's an electron withdrawing agent, even though it doesn't directly bind them, let's, like something like a mm -hmm. quinone. But if you look at the structure, it's very similar to a quinone. It's a carbon atom with two carbonyl mm -hmm. groups. And a quinone is in a very similar. They usually have a ring and two or more carbonyl groups. So what happens is that Lewis acids, they drop the pH of the cell, which automatically decreases the cell's affinity for water. So which means you're going to be excreting some of that extra water of the cell. Very it's important. the exact yeah. opposite of linoleic acid and estrogen, which sucks the water. Oh, exactly, yeah. which sucks the water in. And it's not a coincidence. The linoleic acid has multiple double bonds. It's much more hydrophilic than the saturated fats, which lack the double mm -hmm. bonds. Um, and so basically, anytime you have a, an increase of intracellular pH, you have increased affinity for water. The moment water streams in, that's already a signal for dedifferentiation and mitosis for division. Um, and if this process continues uncontrollably, we basically get the cancer. So conversely, in other, when you ex, ex, uh, exclude more extracellular water, in other words, the cell becomes acidified and, and a little bit dehydrated, so to speak, uh, then basically you're getting high amounts of, di of differentiation. You're also increasing the affinity of the intracellular proteins for potassium and magnesium while decreasing their affinity for sodium and calcium. And in fact, when carbon dioxide is produced and it streams out of the cell, it draws calcium and sodium with it. But if you're not producing sufficient amounts of carbon dioxide, which also means you're not pr probably producing sufficient amounts of ATP because carbon dioxide and ATP go, go hand in hand. They're signs of good mitochondrial function. ATP has affinity for magnesium. But if you don't have sufficient amounts of ATP, you'll have more ADP, which is the degraded version. ADP has an affinity for calcium. So low metabolic rate by definition means cellular excitotoxicity, cellular alkalinity, and cellular division because of the lack of carbon dioxide and a little bit, uh, you know, the lack of the ATP as well. ATP always exists in the body in a complex with magnesium. So if you're taking magnesium but not producing sufficient amounts of ATP, I think we discussed this previously, you will not be, it will not become bioavailable. But the production of ATP is tied to the production of carbon dioxide. So all of these features, the carbon dioxide, oh, it also increases the uptake of serotonin into the platelets. So taking, so producing sufficient amounts of carbon dioxide will lower your extracellular levels of serotonin. Uh, it will also increases the uptake of histamine, a very highly inflammatory mediator. Uh, its tra transport also depends on carbon dioxide and on sodium as well. So what does it mean like it increases the, the uptake? So uptake for, di for um, 
into the platelets. Oh, so if it's if it's not in the platelets, it floats around, you know, oh, freely and can actually go into tissues and cause inflammation. Yes, yeah, exactly. So so the, the the SSRI drugs actually inhibit the uptake and they increase the amount of extracellular serotonin, and it's considered good because you know serotonin is the happy hormone. But actually, we want the yeah. opposite. And there is a drug on the market called tyaneptine, which is selective serotonin reuptake enhancer, powerful antidepressant. You can achieve the exact same effects as this drug by increasing you know, the production of CO2 or taking CO2 exogenously because CO2 also increases the uptake of serotonin into the platelets and into the, the mm-hmm. synapse. Uh, so really, uh, also, uh, the, the, uh, the increased delivery of CO2, whether it's endogenously produced or from the uh, from the outside, it has an anti-aromatase effect. So we're synthesizing less uh, estrogen. We already said it, you'll, you'll be synthesizing less nitric oxide. You will be uptaking the uh, you'll incre- you'll increase the deactivation of histamine and serotonin, and also uh, it's it's been demonstrated that when you actually uh, uh, increase the amounts of CO2, there is an anti-aging gene. I haven't looked much into it. It's called clotrimine. Oh, yeah. wow. um, yeah, inactiv- uh, carbon dioxide together with vitamin D are two of the well-known activators of the. Of I did not gene. know that. That's great. Yeah, clotho is one of the it's big in the longevity community for sure. There's the studies on it. Yeah, so almost everything that you do uh, uh, metabolically in terms of health depends on the production of CO2. It's not a waste product. And when we breathe too fast, what, uh, what happens is that because the cells only can produce a certain amount of CO2, you know, per per, per unit of time. So every time you're breathing out, you're, you're breathing out carbon dioxide and taking oxygen in. But if you breathe too quickly, right, this kind of overwhelms the ability of the cell to produce CO2, which means that you will, at some point, you'll be circulating a lot of oxygen, but because the CO2 production cannot keep up with the amount of CO2 you exhale, uh, then you're going to get into a situation where you're hyperventilating, so to speak, and it really creates respiratory alkalosis because you're losing CO2. Respiratory alkalosis means, again, edema, increase of intracellular water uptake, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it also means if when the, when the pH of the cell increases, it also means overproduction of several inflammatory mediators, inclu- including lactate. And this is a, a situation we're seeing inside of the cells, especially cancer cells. Cancer cells are highly alkaline. Um, and uh, basically, they're overproducing a lot of lactate, and they're they're up. They're, they have a, a very high uptake of water. In fact, I think the word tumor is a Latin word which meant swelling, um, and you can actually reduce the swelling of the tumor to a, a tremendous degree simply by either like a increasing delivery of CO2 uh, around the tumor if it's on the surface, or increasing uptake of CO2 um, through you know either like a CO2 bath. Or if you take drugs that that increase the the levels of CO two in the blood, such as the drugs known as carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, which decrease the degradation of CO two, so over time you're going to build up more CO two in the blood, so you will acidify the blood. That would be acetazolamide or diamox. Yes, exactly. So there are several of them. Thiamine recently was discovered to be as potent um, as acetazolamide as a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor. Vitamin B one. So really, uh, 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 it has an antifibrotic effect. In fact, um, um, there's like a old prescription thing from the Middle Ages. That book you sent me uh, talks about it. Basically, they had this magical spring that they yeah. thought was infused with the spirit of God. And people with fibrotic diseases would go in there and their scars would disappear if they're bathed their legs or like whatever other limbs or even the body. So it has to be anti-serotonin. Yes, it's exactly, which we kind of discussed, yeah. 
it increases the deactivation of yeah. serotonin. But more importantly, even after the collagen has formed, this car has formed, which is what that's what fibrosis is really over collagenization. It's able to actually manage to dissolve this fibrous scar tissue, probably by increasing its its innervation. Scar tissue is even though it's 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 alive, it doesn't have a, a lot of nerves mm. on it. A lot of people with scars, if they touch them, they feel numb. So in fact, many people can cut their scar tissue and not feel much in terms of pain, uh-huh. simply because that tissue is de-innervated. And the de-innervation process is one of the precursors to cancer. Mm. Uh, the central nervous system controls the cancerization. If there's no nerves there, at some point, cancer will probably develop. It's not a coincidence that 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 fibrosis is a precursor state to cancer. So do you believe the mechanism of how it addresses the, the, the fibrosis, or not, not the fibrosis, but the scar tissue? Is increasing uh, oxygen delivery by vasodilation. Oxygen delivery and also nerve growth. There is something called brain-derived neurotropic <laughs> factor. It's been shown that inhaling carbon dioxide increases that molecule, and it's been shown to increase innervation not in the, only in the central nervous peripheral. system but also oh, peripherally. Wow! So yeah. it's a peripheral activation of PD, BDNF. So it should, BDNF yeah. is improper, improperly named. It should be CDNF, central CNSB. Or, or, or PDNF, peripheral derived yeah. <laughs> well, brain implies central, you know. It's a, yeah. yeah. But it's a nervous system, essentially. Yeah, it's a nervous General. system and it can, you know, it increases its activity. It calms it down too because of the decalcification by taking calcium outside of the cell, and of course, neurons are cells too. By taking excess calcium outside of the cell, that's what has the calming effect. And I think there was a carbon dioxide was a therapy uh, back in like maybe a couple of decades ago for epilepsy. It was actually like uh, if it, you have like susceptibility it, it to seizures. should be instead of ketosis. That's yeah. for darn sure. Yeah. Yeah. And the test for susceptibility to seizures was hyperventilating. They'll ask you to like breathe yeah, through yeah. your mouth very quickly for like maybe 30 seconds. And if it starts to seize up or like get jittery, they'll tell you to stop and say, okay, you, you have insufficient amount that of carbon dioxide in your body. That should be a clue. But most physicians just never got it. So um, I was fortunate enough to acquire a copy of the book written in 1905 by Dr. Rose, who was a pretty prominent physician at the time. He had published a lot and was active in the academic area. And he compiled a list of conditions and treatments and did a pretty nice summary. And it's interesting. I'm sure you noticed it too when you're reading it, that the language is completely different. It's basically almost 150 years old. So especially when it comes to medical jargon, the, the terms were so different. Uh, that, that they were using back then. It's, it, you know, it, it's a gradual shift and you never notice it until you abruptly see it, an older document like that. But uh, it was fascinating. It was, and it just further reinforced the value. And, and you had mentioned that these mineral springs, well, these mineral springs did not have the breath of God. Maybe you consider CO2 the breath of God, but it was really high in carbon dioxide concentrations. And that's why people continue to go there because they got value from the CO2. So it's been used therapeutically for centuries. It wasn't until like the 1850s or so where they were able to understand how to use chemicals to generate CO2 gas. This is before they had cylinders of it like we do today and actually provide carbon dioxide uh, therapy to the tissues. Now, did you see the illustrations there where they put them in a, like a glass bottle, put in like tartaric acid and, and, soda, and baking soda and water, and they generate the gas, and they, the gas gets generated and delivers into the tissue. So, so what? Well, heat up limestone yeah, or something, yeah, like yeah. with acid, I think that yeah, was the, the element. Actually, later in the book, he, he, gives the, he actually gives the doses and everything too, which is pretty good if we have a, 
a globe the, the global reset that just 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 decimates and destroys all our resources i mean you could go you can basically make it yourself with baking soda and some type of acid uh, so why, why don't you just give us your view of, of the book? I suspect you did you finish it yet? I haven't finished the whole book, but I saw the. I mean, I read the intro and I, then I looked at all the conditions that are there, and basically they are uh, it spans all the physiological, including the mental conditions as well. The book doesn't go into great detail, but I found several studies showing that a combination of acetazolamide and thiamine, vitamin B1, achieved 70% cure for the insanities, which they used to call them back or in hysteria, the 1960s. hysteria, because obviously it was due to a woman's uterus. Yes, but cures, cures, not remissions, not basically, and there were mental institutions at the time. All these people were hospitalized, some of them for life. Um, so in order for them to get a release from the hospital, they must have truly achieved you know, a pretty significant and sustained what a doctor, modern doctor would call remission, right? Because nothing is curable in modern medicine. Uh, and these people, just by raising their CO2 levels, these people managed to cure some of the really uh, terrible insanities, something that will probably pass as, as schizophrenia or psychosis these days, uh, or even dementias. Um, there was another study that I found that basically if you if you increase, if you get people to breathe in a, in a not in a paper, but in a container that will gradually increase the concentration of carbon dioxide, you can actually... Uh, get people from, you know, moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease back to a situation where they can recognize their relatives. Um, similar studies have been demonstrated with lithium, microdosing lithium back in the uh, early 20th century, when actually lithium was part of the spring water in many of the of the cities around the United States. It was only later got removed so that the FDA can sell it as a drug <laughs> or the companies can sell it as a drug. But lithium has a very strong stimulating stimulating effect on the production of carbon dioxide. Uh, so to, and uh, to me, that's the major explanation, the main explanation behind lithium's benefits. And to this day, lithium is the gold standard drug for treating bipolar disorder and, and many of the other uh, situations that involve mania. Uh, and mania is really another uh, euphemism for excitotoxicity into the nervous system, um, and which is what CO2 uh, reverses. Um, so yeah, basically the uh, so I think they mentioned dysentery, they mentioned fistulas, they mentioned fibrotic conditions of the digestive tract. Um, uh, whooping, what is cough. whooping cough. Yeah. Oh, uh, I think even, there was even a mention a mention a case of tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. uh, they also mentioned a case the case of uh, uh, what do they call it rhinitis, which I guess is considered an allergic mm -hmm. uh, condition. However, just as I mentioned, uh, since uh, CO2 increases their reuptake of histamine, you would expect it to have an antihistamine effect, and which kind of corroborates with that finding. So really, every condition you can think of, both physiological and mental, uh, can be remediated and in many cases cured uh, by either increasing endogenous CO2 production, decreasing its degradation, which is what the carbonic anhydrase inhibitors do, or and or uh, taking extra CO2 uh, no, exogenously. And, of course, the most important thing, Breathe through your nose, not through your mouth, and not too well, often. It's very rare where I want to revise what you just said, but this is one of those rare conditions. So, yes, nasal breathing is far superior and it is the goal. But I wanted to let you know and everyone know that you can easily, easily overbreathe through your nose. And many, many people do it. So just breathing through your nose is not sufficient. It has to do with breathing. That's what I said, not too often. Yeah, I know, but often. you've got to be careful. So okay. the, the problem is, is you get these psychologically initiated and, and persistent habits. It's a habit. It's basically a habit. And it just, it, it's, it's a pathological habit where you overbreathe. And that's the key thing is the overbreathing. In fact, it's, so Peter uh, discusses in his uh, training modules, 
how the most common reason for emer- uh, ambulance rides in New York City, like it's like 60%. And that's a lot. I mean, that's obviously the majority. But and people don't jump into an ambulance unless they think they're going to die. You know, because they, they're, most of them are aware that there's a huge bill for that. And it probably could result in medical bankruptcy, you know, going, jumping into an anchor. So they only do it if it's serious. And the majority of those people, it's due because they were overbreathing. These Almost all the panic attacks are due to overbreathing. Migraines is this vascular constriction in the brain. You can eliminate the migraine. And I did not know this until just recently. I used to use magnesium. And that is, does have some pretty potent effective vasodilatory capacity, but not as effective as CO2. Uh, so you can eliminate all these vascular headaches. Uh, and by just, by, by the first thing, well, clearly you want the, the, the metabolic production in the mitochondria, but you want to il- minimize the loss, the removal of carbon dioxide from your body through the breathing, overbreathing, which can result in you know, some of the most common symptoms would be a headache or dizziness or, yeah. or air hunger. And and the problem with these breathing habits is to get into a vicious cycle where you just, you get trapped and you can't get out. And your solution psychologically is to continue to breathe more. And it just makes it worse and worse until you pass out. I mean, it really is a terrible condition that you really feel like you're dying. And that's what, that's what the panic disorder is from. This over breathing that is a result of this, usually a, some type of trauma or affect it, this cause this, this bad habit. But it's fortunately it's fixable. And there are devices called capnometers, which measure the CO2 level in your breath. And uh, they can be really helpful for identifying, diagnosing and developing a protocol to help behaviorally eliminate that. So that's an important component, but it's not the most important. And, and the reason I got so excited is because I just recently learned this, that, and it was, as I said earlier, catalyzed by the race, repeat CO2 lecture that he gave almost 15 years ago um, is that its use in exogenously is probably the key ticket. And there's a number of different ways I want to go over. The, probably the most common and palatable way for most people is going to be to breathe it in. So you can, and you can do, some people are doing this now. You can just soda stream or a variety of ways. You can drink it too. You can eat it you know, through, drink it through water, actually carbonated water is what you're going to get some CO2, but I think it's relatively small. Are you familiar with Mr. Muslimov and the National Geographic uh, no. uh, movie that was no, made I... about him? He lived to, a, to the age of 168, really? confirmed. Yep. They did a, a movie with him in the 1970s. Uh, he lived in the former Soviet Republic of Azerbaijan. Mm-hmm. Uh, he got married at the age of 142, had a kid at the age of 150. And the only reason he died at the age of 168 is because he fell off his oh, horse geez. and I think broke his like uh, hip or something and just didn't recover from that. Yeah. Well, I know, I know it's possible and uh, you know, it, but, but uh, I'm absolutely confident that you need to do that. You have to be biologically optimized and, and yeah, the, yeah, definitely. most all of our conversations, and I would definitely review the previous ones really focus on this because you are a giant in helping people understand the biology of why this is so important and all the, and all the details. So biological optimization with the mitochondria energy production is key, but this is kind of next level. So that doesn't dismiss the fact that you need to optimize mitochondrial cellular energy production. That's absolutely imperative, but the next level that takes it, because we're going, we're going to, the general principle is that life on earth 
started a long time ago. And primitive life and biology on this planet was used to high CO2 levels. I mean, really high. Right now, it's 0.4%, less, less than one half of 1% is the level of CO2 in the atmosphere, which is pretty tiny. I mean, it was in, in, in this, the Ray Pete CO2 presentation, he talked about the naked mole rat, which is what really catalyzed my interest, which is a animal that has up to 30, lives up to 30 years long, which is exponentially longer than a conventional lab rat, which lives yes. two or three years. It's 99.9% genetically identical to the common rat, but has a ridiculously yeah, long and lifespan. So his speculation, so it's not genetics. I'm sure you saw the video, is that that the, yeah. this rat digs a hole and then covers up the, the opening to the hole. So as a result, the CO2 levels rise pretty dramatically where it's like five or 6%. Five or, now this naked mole rat is a mammal and we're, we are mammals too. Now, clearly we're not a rat and I'm not suggesting in any way, shape or form we are, but there's many similarities in metabolic physiology. And this to me was a, just a shocking illustration that there might be some magic with CO2. And I'm and bats too. Bats. Oh, are bats. That's that the other illustration. Thank you for reminding about it. Yeah, bats do the same thing, and even though they shouldn't have a long lifespan because it's such a, such a high metabolic rate and rapid heart rate. Yeah, it's a, it's basically a mouse with right. wings, so it should live as as long as a common mouse, which is what two years yeah, yeah. stops, but it lives thirty to forty years yeah, in yeah. the caves because they're in the caves. The CO two level is high. So that is the biological clue that there's some magic here, and I don't think anyone understands precisely other than the general principles you outlo brilliantly outlined and identified some of which I wasn't aware of. And that, that's why I had you on because I wanted to get the basics from you. Uh, be, but it, there's probably some other things going on too, that we still don't understand that, that really catalyze our biology to, to really improve radically improve our quality of life. So I, I'm committing to doing this every day. I mean, and you can, you can travel with these bags. You can fill up a bag. You don't have to carry around a 20 pound container, but you could probably do smaller cylinders too, that you can travel with if you needed to. But, uh, it's, it's, it's really magic. And, you know, there, there are companies that sell regulators that you can use on the CO2 tanks where you can breathe them. And that definitely, it's better than, than, um, the, it's actually better than than jumping in a bag and, and getting the CO2 or going into one of these body suits and doing it. Uh, it's actually superior to breathe it. And, and, but beyond breathing it, it would be the uh, uh, rectal insufflation. Now, interestingly, I, I developed some cataracts because of over-aggressive uh, longevity interventions, which was related to hyperbaric chamber use and at too high pressures. So I'm, I have some strong evidence that I see that I'm thinking just using the, the carbon dioxide flowing out of the bag onto the eyes will help reverse that. Niacinamide mm -hmm. eye drops can do it. Recent study came well, out. Uh, niacinamide? I am, a, yeah. I'm using that too. And progesterone is eye drops. Believe it or not. Really? Can you send, yeah, you, yeah. Recent can studies. you send me those? Yeah. Send I'll me send those studies. This. I did yeah. not realize that. And niacinamide is still was about two percent or four percent. Yeah, something like that, two or four yeah. percent, and just selling water and it just yeah, it's, it's really good. I was using nice. I haven't haven't used them, but I forgot about the niacinamide eye drops. That's a good one. I should start again. Uh, now, ostensibly, and N-acetylcarnosine can do that too, but I think those studies were flawed, and it doesn't work. I got to find. Interestingly enough, the the niacinamide study demonstrated that the reason for dry and cataracts is decreased 
production of pregnenolone, testosterone, and DHA locally in the eye. And then when you supply an, an, an niacinamide, gets converted to NAD+, which is the cofactor for many of the downstream enzymatic. So you restore local steroidogenesis of the protective steroids, and they claim that, that basically the, the, the problem is bioenergetic. But the direct cause is the loss of the protective steroids. Jeez, I did not. I definitely want to go to those studies. So, how would you administer um, progesterone in the eye? That's a little bit difficult because it's a lipophilic yeah, molecule. Yeah, for sure. Um, and you got I guess you can try to look if there's a pregnenolone sulfate, slightly more water soluble. That can be one uh, way. Another way is you don't have to administer you, directly. Can you do the it on eye. the eyelid? Exactly, eyelid or or on the temples, anywhere here on the face or the scalp. Because the trigeminal nerve ultimately will affect the eye and carry it there as well. Okay, yeah, that, because you, there's no way. I just, it's hard to imagine putting that in the eye. I mean, I'm. No, no, tocopherol and oils, yeah. they're going to yeah, irritate that the eye. If you put them that would too not viscous. be good marriage for sure. Uh, wow, I'm going to give that a try. I'm going to figure that out. I'm going to figure that out by, by tomorrow for sure. <laughs> Yeah, I think for a progesterone that they did some kind of a cyclodextrin yeah, solution, cyclodextrin which is, is just dangerous, making, though, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, they are, and they're very inflammatory yeah. themselves. So I thought, like, wow, what a way to reverse the beneficial effects. Maybe the effects were even would have because the effects were even good with that solution. So I thought without the cyclodextrin it would have been even yeah, better. Yeah, yeah, you don't want cyclodextrins. Now, I, I I was uh, at a biohacking event this year, and one of the vendors had a sub a nano glutathione which because glutathione is normally about 80 nanometers this was like under one nanometer and they did it with cyclodextrins it says you know i don't think it's a good idea <laughs> yeah yeah um wow where are we at uh okay yeah i probably need to shift out i think close to it maybe we could summarize these things um i we're not gonna have enough time i'm gonna have to have you back to go over the quinones as a substitute for methylene blue but I, I maybe should just summarize this and maybe you can comment on it quickly. So anyway, let me just, I, I'm going to be interviewing Peter Litchfield soon to, to at least give everyone the next level of, on how to understand the breathing works and works and how you can actually get consultants to help you process this. Cause it's, it's like really hard to figure out yourself. Uh, and that's coming soon within the next two month or two. Uh, but I was giving a presentation at a event that was targeting uh, parents of autistic children. And I gave someone, I didn't actually mention it in my lecture because I've become less fond of methylene blue. Um, and I, someone asked a question after my presentation and asked about methylene blue and I mentioned it. And then one of the other presenters came to me after my presentation and pointed out she was a, I'm actually interviewing her in January uh Sabina is her first name and I forget her last name but she's a gastroenterologist from California and pointed out that in her experience she she really studies deeply the, the human microbiome and found out that methylene because you probably don't know this that's why I wanted to share it with you I certainly didn't know it that, that in her studies the, the methylene blue just destroys bifidobacteria in the gut gone oh, well. so so she said she was and she didn't come up to me in a disparaging way she was just trying to give me information which is great i love in, in that context and actually was not reluctant or to consider because there are some cases methylene blue will save your life there's no question about it it is a useful tool in the bucket but it's not as useful as i thought previously 
And so I've sh shifted my position on methylene blue. I still use it in relatively small amounts. I, I take maybe two milligrams three times a week before I do my sauna. Uh, that actually happens to be the, the, the amount that achieves concentrations inside the cell that are shown to reverse aging. Anything more than that? You're probably oh, going to inhibit the monoamino oxidase. I independently pay. came up with the Georgie <laughs> dose. Yeah, and I, it's not Georgie, but the, yeah, yeah. like the people well, that did the found it. research. That's the key. Yes. It's, <laughs> it's just like using a search engine. You know, if the search engine exists, you'd never find it. So thank God we have the search engine. You're the search engine for these useful studies. So thank you. Uh, 100 nanomoles per liter is the optimal. So okay. nanomolar so per liter. It, that's so the, the dose is two dose. milligrams. But what's the frequency? Because the half life is pretty high. So is it like every other day, or is it every day? I think a milligram daily, one milligram tops daily would achieve that concentration. When people ask Dr. Peek, he said micrograms per day, he thought would be even better. Really, the concern is, uh, without knowing the bifidobacteria effect, the concern is that in even in milligram doses, maybe like 10 or 15 is going to start to inhibit monoamine oxidase type mm -hmm. A, which preferentially metabolizes serotonin, so you can get like a serotonin syndrome. And there are published cases of people, usually on SSRI drugs, but just they took a low dose methylene blue with the SRI drug and ended up in the hospital with serotonin syndrome. So we know the danger is there. Um, and uh, the different quinones, so the methylene blue and the benzoquinones, such as coenzyme Q10, seem to be preferentially inhibiting monoamine oxidase type A. The naftoquinones, such as vitamin K, and even the tetracycline antibiotics, preferentially inhibit monoamine oxidase type B. So they're actually decreasing the 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 deactivation the, the of dopamine. Mm -hmm. And monoamine oxidase type B inhibitors are one of the earliest anti-aging drugs. There's a drug called Selegiline, mm -hmm. uh, also known as Depernil. Uh, and uh, back in the 60s and 70s was, was all the rage among the rich people in Hollywood especially as the first kind of like a widespread anti-aging therapy. To this day, it's used. So we know that they have that inhibiting dopamine breakdown has an anti-aging effect. But methylene blue, actually, unfortunately, and the dosage is probably different for for different person depending on how hypothyroid they are. You can get a severe buildup of serotonin even by low milligram doses daily. So anything more than a milligram, I would not use daily. Yeah. So two milligrams three times a week is would qualify too. I would think. Right. So the same. It comes down to one or one milligram daily. Actually, right? a little bit less, but yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's good. Uh, that's really good, actually. I'm very pleased with that. Uh, and then you also recommended the methylene blue mouthwash. And it was, was it five or six milligrams in a liter of water? So the same concentration they used to sterilize the fish tanks. Mm -hmm. And I, from what I understood, is basically about, uh, yeah, about five to six milligrams per liter. I think the dosage that they used was per gallon. So it was like 20 milligrams per gallon. But a gallon is almost four liters. Mm -hmm. So you're getting about five to six milligrams per liter. Okay, yeah. So anything higher is, is not, more is not better. The, you know, it's the Goldilocks dose is what yeah. you want. And, and that yeah. so yeah. many of us, and I'm absolutely guilty of this, is, you know, more is better. Uh, you know, if a little exercise is good, you know, killing it's going to be great. No, it's going to kill you prematurely if you do too much. We just did a, I just interviewed a, a cardio, cardiologist from Mayo Clinic who uh, published a really landmark study, I don't know if you saw it, about exercise and how any resistance training done intensely for over two hours a week, you're going to actually be better off if you were a couch potato because you, you will increase your yeah. death rate. Remember we discussed this, yeah, especially because yeah. there's a heavy eccentric portion in oh, yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in the weightlifting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but I think it was even beyond that. I just think it just pushes you too hard. So, 
you know, it's a balance. And the, the, be- uh, the best exercise is walking. Apparently, this is, yeah. Yep, yep. So, you know, it's moving. All the centenarians, without exceptions, were never active athletes. And all of them, I think, were gardeners. Mm-hmm. And many of them smoked. Now, I don't, I don't recommend yeah, that yeah, they're smoking, but I just want to say that it's not definitely not the, the phenotype that most people would imagine these jacked, you know, lean people that are lifting weights all day and like, you know, six days a week and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, Ray Peter used to quote William Blake who said, you never know what's enough until you experience what's more than enough. <laughs> so, so, there so, so. <laughs> to that. Right. puts perspective on life. That's for sure. So yeah, just, exactly. just finishing up. So you mentioned the benzoquinones like vitamin well, CoQ10 and vitamin K2. CoQ10, yeah. And there's two forms of K2. One is MK7. The other is MK4. MK4 probably is better overall, but it, compliance sucks because you got to take it three times a day, four times a day. Whereas MK7 is a long yeah. half-life and once a day is sufficient. So, but those, so- go ahead. The, the only difference is the the length of the, the side chain. So basically the uh, vitamin K7, uh, MK, MK7, K2, MK7 has a longer lipophilic chain. So it basically is, it stays in the system longer. However, the actual active cofactor for gamma glutamyl carboxylase mm-hmm. and the carboxylation of osteocalcin and many of the other, the carboxylation of many other proteins, which is the attachment of no, carbon dioxide. I was going to say, that's, that's what it's doing, putting yeah. CO2. So wouldn't it make sense that if you had more CO2 in your tissues, it'd be, be more yeah. helpful? It's if, such an important if, thing. If, many if, of the actual... I, I, did, I, yeah. I did not remember. That's how K2 works. Yeah. It, it helps yeah. facilitate the carb- carboxylation. So your insulin, your many many of the peptide hormones are not actually active until they get carboxylated. So if we don't have carbon dioxide, they will not be active. But even if we have carbon dioxide without vitamin K, they will not K2, get carboxylated. K2. K2 and specifically MK4 is the cofactor, the direct cofactor that our body uses. So there's some research that suggests that while MK7 is active as a quinone, it can help if there's a blockage in the electron transport chain somewhere. It's not the direct cofactor for the carboxylation. It gets converted back into the short to slightly shorter chain version known as MK4. Same thing for K1. K1 phyloquinone, uh, basically it it has a hemostatic effect. It will stop excessive bleeding. It will act as a quinone, but for the carboxylation, it's only MK4. So maybe ideally is to use a combination of of all three, um, depending on like you know um, yeah. uh, what of the price or a combination of MK four well, and MK seven. I think will be a... the, the big challenge with it is the compliance because it's it's hard. It's not easy to get. Yeah. And what's the half life? Is it do you have to take it three times a day or four is even better? So the half-life can be misleading. You want to measure half-life in tissues, which has not been done with MK4. They've only measured half-life in blood. Um, and then for we know that for MK7, it's longer. But some studies have said, well, maybe the reason the, the reason MK7 has a longer half-life in blood is because it, it's not directly usable to the tissues. They need to convert it back to MK4. So it circulates around until it gets uh, some of the side chain gets cleaved and it becomes MK4. But MK4 is directly usable and very quickly disappears from blood in a matter of thing like three That's or four hours yeah. is the yeah. half-life. Like, yeah. Somewhat like T3. But that may actually be a good sign, which means uh, it hasn't been investigated, but it could mean also tissues very, have a very high uptake of MK4, just like pregnenolone and DHEA. So it rapidly disappears from the blood, oh, but it's actually in the tissues doing what it's supposed to be doing. Darn. Yeah. So it, it's the tissue levels. I mean, that's, I mean, you remind me every time of the basics, you know, it's the tissue levels. And that's, that's the last our conversation on estrogen. You made that point really clear that you can, all these clinicians are measured in, in the blood and the estrogen levels low. Oh, you need it. No, it's not in the blood. It's in the tissues. Yeah. yeah. 
That's where it, that's where it acts actually acts. Yeah, right? yeah. So all you all you see through the blood is a transport mechanism and the health of the gland that's producing yeah. it. So estradiol in the blood is mostly of ovarian origin. Yes, it's low in menopause because the ovarians are failing. That does not mean it's low in the yeah. tissues because the tissues can produce it themselves. Yeah, yeah. So do you, do you think that's similar with K2 or MK, uh, MK4, that the tissue levels, that the MK4 migrates into the tissues and it stays there and stays there longer? You- yes, because I, I saw some studies with humans that were basically showed that even five milligrams of MK4 uh, taken once daily was sufficient to uh, increase to the maximum amount possible the carboxylation of osteocalcin, um, even though basically the blood levels disappear very quickly because with five milligrams, uh, within an hour, yeah, it's yeah. gone. Like you need about 30 to 45 milligrams to actually get that big peak and an area under the curve. Uh, so you need about, you know... Uh, tens of milligrams to produce the three to four hour half-life. Lower doses appears even more quickly. So they thought that a lower dose will not be mm-hmm. sufficient, but they found out that anything over one milligram and up to five milligram was maximally stimulating for the carboxylation of osteocalcin, which should not be happening if, if, if basically if the effects were, were, yeah, were yeah, very yeah. short-lived. So, so your, your suspicion is it does stay in tissues longer? It stays in tissues longer, and especially in the liver. One of the reasons Dr. Peter recommended eating mm-hmm. liver is that most of fat-soluble vitamins are there. So if you're taking vitamin K4, it could very well be stored in tissues specifically in the liver, and then the liver releases it as, as needed. Uh, there is a very big reservoir of, of vitamin K in the liver, which is why originally as a good source of vitamin K was uh, goose liver pate. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think that they, they were even raised for that specific reason to provide yeah. uh, vitamin K. Uh, with the X factor of uh, Western Price, I think, didn't he say that... that um, uh, some cultures specifically ate, like we're yeah. raising the, the yeah, geese specifically to fatten them up. was K2 for sure. I, I don't yeah. think he differentiated because yeah. I don't think the science was known at that time between K, MK4 and MK7. But, but, but it's the way well, it's, liver. It's MK4. MK7 yeah. is a bacterial metabolite. So. And they found that eating liver even once a week, I think, was sufficient to produce benefits on bones and other other tissues that vitamin K is known to help protect. Um, you don't have to eat liver every day, yeah, yeah, right? Sure. So if, if you have a very short half-life, it shouldn't work. But once a week or once every two weeks is sufficient to get those benefits, which suggests that it stays in your tissues. Didn't the Japanese researchers do studies showing that MK4 radically improved uh, reversal of osteoporosis? Reversal. In fact, it's a, an approved drug called Glakay. G L A K A Y. Uh, you cannot get it. You cannot get it over the counter in Japan. It's a it's an osteoporosis drug for prevention and treatment, mm-hmm. and the dosage is forty five milligrams daily, and you take it once yeah. a day. Yeah, I think that what, what what was your best guess? I'm thinking like maybe thirty milligrams three times a day might be optimal. Uh, I know you can do get by with less, but what do you think? I think depends on the on the reason. If it's strictly for for bone health, uh, that human study that said that one milligram is the minimum of MK4. Mm-hmm. Specifically, look at MK4. Anything less than one milligram, they did not see carboxylation of osteocalcin, which is the required mm-hmm. cofactor for creation mm-hmm. of new bone tissue. Uh, up to five, they they saw increasing actually exponentially increasing carboxylation, and after five milligrams, there was a plateau. But I think they only tested ten milligrams over the five milligrams. I don't think they went all the way up to forty-five. The Japanese studies did those did those response relationships and found out that you can take much higher doses up to 40 45 milligrams three times mm-hmm. daily 
and there were additional benefits on insulin sensitivity and blood glucose. But the benefits for, which means the metabolic effects are still there. In fact, you can get more of them with more. But the benefits for bones plateau at around 45 milligrams daily. Yeah, but it's nice to have strong bones. Who doesn't want strong bones? Who doesn't want of course. Yeah. Hip fracture when they get old. But, but these are people with osteoporosis. But, 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 for healthy people, five milligrams daily apparently was enough. Yeah, but the, the primary reason I'm advocating this is, is a substitute for methylene blue in the mitochondria to absolutely reduce reductive stress and optimize cellular energy production in the form of ATP. So maybe 30 milligrams three times a day might be the sweet spot. That's yeah. great. That's great. In fact, it has a very potent anti-estrogenic effect. <laughs> yeah. uh, my my yeah. group, yes. <laughs> uh, my group did a study with yeast, and there, there are these things called the YES and the YAS assays, mm -hmm. the androgen uh, uh, assay and the estrogenic assay. Vitamin K1, K2, specifically MK4, uh, MK7, but but weaker, and, M and K3, uh, also known as menadione. Uh, I do not recommend that form. It's but it's, it is used as a cheap version of vitamin K in some countries. Uh, they were all anti-estrogenic in the yeast assay. They were pretty potent anti-estrogenic, stronger than tamoxifen, which of course is partially estrogenic, but it, it was the reference compound. They were all stronger than tamoxifen. So, and the the concentration that we used would require about 10 milligrams at least twice daily to achieve. Okay. Well, this has been great. Uh, we were able to hit it, hit it, uh, 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 most of the highlights, at least in there. For, that's great. So um, I want to thank you. You're, you're amazing. The, the amazing hydrate comes through again, provides us with just really valuable insights that, I mean, you could be a full-time researcher and do this. I mean, do, do 40, 70, 80 hours a week and not come up with the pearls that you come up with. So thanks for all your efforts. And I can't tell you how, many people really appreciate all you're doing so thank you well thanks thanks for inviting me it's spreading the knowledge that's what yeah, it's all you, about you're really really good at that well we're a good team you know you you find it and i help spread it <laughs> <laughs> i unleash yeah, yeah. it and then you yeah, channel yeah, it. yeah 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 that's that's the way to do it so all right well thanks for all your insights i learned so much today and that's like which i typically always do which is i love dialoguing with you about these topics because uh Sometimes it's just re reinforcing things, but most of the time I'm learning new stuff. So thanks again.